It's, so, it's such a joy to be back. If you, if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I've been coming here, uh, oh, I don't know, about once a month over the last few months while Josh White has been on sabbatical. And I'm always amazed that I keep getting invited back. So I don't know if that says something about you or something about me. I don't know. But it's really cool to be here and cool to see uh, some, some, some familiar faces that I know from a long time ago. And even some guys from just like last week, I know it's David over here who I met at, at Union Gospel Mission on Friday. Didn't know you were coming here. That's awesome. Great to see you. Um, anyhow, that's enough about me. You guys didn't come here to hear me talk about me or the people I do or do not know. I hope you came here to hear from the Lord. That's why I'm here. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, we sit here in this place knowing that we, uh, we don't deserve your love and yet you are so willing to give it. There's so much that we don't deserve and yet you are so willing to bless, to go over the top, to overflow with love for us. I pray, Lord, that as your word is opened and we speak of you, I pray that you would truly speak to us, speak to our hearts, that you would settle all of our hearts, all the worries and concerns and thoughts and troubles that we bring into this place. Lord, may they be lifted to you right now. And help us to truly focus on the one thing that really matters, what's eternal. And that is you and that our life is gonna be taken up into yours. Even now, you've implanted your life inside of us. And make this true, Lord, not only to our heads, but to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, speak to us. We need to hear from you. In your name, amen. I don't know how many of you have had this experience. I've, I've heard it's pretty common, but anybody know somebody who's gone from like, I guess you call it standard American herbivore diet to being vegan or, or something like that? You guys know someone like that? So uh, I, I recall, this has happened several times for me, and no surprise in Portland, right? This is like vegan capital of the world or something probably. But... Uh, Usually the way it starts out is like, I'm thinking about a new diet. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, making some life changes. And then over time, this doesn't always happen, okay? So I'm not painting, like trying to reinforce a stereotype. There are always exceptions to this. But at some point it moves from like, yeah, I'm making this, uh, this little lifestyle change to my diet to almost like a, uh, a campaign, a sort of like uh, proselytizing venture. I see, some, <laughs> I see some nervous chuckles around the room. Um, where it's kind of like there starts to become like a disgust at things that they used to eat and that sort of thing. I'm not saying this to knock anybody who's vegan. If you're here, I'm glad you're here. I'm not trying to knock you. The reason why I'm bringing that out is to illustrate a different point. And that point is this. What happened between I'm going to make this small lifestyle change, this dietary change, to sort of like contempt at what you used to, what you used to do? What happened? What happened is that you got a new identity. It was no long, it's no longer just a fraction of your life, but this is who you are. 
And in fact, it goes so far to where, you know, in my case, I would hear things like, you gotta try this burger. It tastes just like a real hamburger. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then you taste it and you, and you go, I think you've forgotten what a real hamburger tastes like, <laughs> right? So it not only changes, like as, as someone's identity gets wrapped up in something, it not only changes the way you behave, the things you do, but it also changes your appetites and your desires, what you like and don't like, right? And this is true not just for like a diet or, or whatever, and there are all kinds of campaigns people jump on, and you've seen them, you're like, whoa, where did you, where did you how'd you end up here? But it's true, this, this illustrates the point that is common throughout scripture that we uh, live, our behavior is driven by who we understand ourselves to be, by your identity, how you identify yourself, how you understand yourself in the world, will in large part shape how you live and who you are and what your appetites are like, what you desire. And that's why when we read here in scripture and elsewhere in scripture, you really don't simply find a moral list. If you do find a moral list, you actually find that in the context of a story or some sort of identity forming statements. And that's what's going on here in 1 Peter, in the first couple chapters. So I'm going to go ahead and read our section, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then we're going to go, we'll go back, we'll work our way through it, okay? So here's what it says in, in the translation I'm reading, the ESV. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, here he quotes again from the Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, another quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So what Peter is doing here is he is, once again, he's sort of following the New Testament tradition of, of the teachers of the New Testament. He's addressing a persecuted minority. And what he's doing is he's concentrating their focus on their, on their own identity in Christ while he's also giving them imperatives. Here's how you live. That's what I mean by imperative. It's an instruction. Do this. And over the first chapter, he's actually had four 
uh, well, he's had three imperatives, and then there's one right here at the beginning of chapter two, one more imperative. We'll get into that in a minute. But what I want to say about this whole identity picture that he's painting is that there are, there are three big metaphors that he's using. The whole first chapter is taken up in this metaphor of being a child in a new family and the implications of that. And then here in chapter two, he's going to finish that metaphor. And then he works into two other metaphors, the living stones in a building or a temple. We might call it a cathedral of God. And then the last metaphor is a a holy nation, a people, a people that you belong to. So we're gonna work our way through those, uh, those various points. But to back up and review chapter one, so we have those four imperatives, right? The first one is in verse 13 where, uh, where Peter says to um, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Now in your English Bible, you're gonna see that there's a lot of imperatives here, but in the Greek, that's the main, that's the main imperative in there. There'll be a lot of other things called participles that are little things that you do along the way, but this is the main thing. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Now, this is, this is what, what is that grace that is to come? Well, he says that you are a, you're a, a chosen people. You've been born again into a new family with an inheritance that's going to be undefiled, un, imperishable, unfading, and filled with glory. And we might not think much of that, but if you think about their world, just, just stop for a minute and think about their world. Paul is talking to a, a community. He calls them exiles, sojourners, people who who don't have, uh, they're not part of the nation they live in. They're people who are passing through. And the people he's writing to, largely the Christian congregation, is made up of people on on the bottom shelf of the social hierarchy. So when we think of inheritance, we may not think of much, but think about it this way. Largely slaves or unknown people, what kind of inheritance do they really have in this age? don't really have much. don't really have much to look forward to. So this is hitting them as really, really good news for some of them. But for others, they're also meeting in the houses of people who are well-to-do, who, are, who have a high standing and lots of honor in society. So if that was you and you heard this, hey, you have an inheritance, you know what he's talking about because you you're inheriting the family of state and all the wealth and all the clout and all the social, um, you know, social benefits that come with that. And so when you hear you're an exile, you're not part of this world, you have a different inheritance, it may not be as good a news for you, right? So this is, this is hitting different, different ears in different ways. But either way, honor was everything in their culture. So for the slave or the person who's on the bottom, like you don't have honor, now's a way for you to have it. Why? Because you're born into a new family. You're born into a new family. The second imperative is in verses 14 through 16, and the main imperative there is where he says, be holy. He's quoting, he's quoting in, uh, I believe it's Leviticus there, be holy as your father is holy. And that's the whole context, right? He doesn't, he, Peter doesn't just give you four imperatives, he has a whole context behind it, right? Why should you be holy? Because your father is. You are part of a family. And in the New Testament, family is, is not blood. Fam- so Paul, for example, says that those who are the children of Abraham are not his blood descendants, but those who have the faith of Abraham. To take it even further, Jesus actually says in John chapter eight to the Jews, he says, you are of your father, the devil, 
Because if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. So you're in a new family, and part of that family means resembling the father of that family, namely the Lord. So be holy because the Lord is. You see, how, you see how these imperatives aren't just like, here's a list of rules, you make sure you do it, and then you're going to end up in the good place instead of the bad place. There's a whole identity built around it. It's, it's making sense of why you should do it. We're honored that way. We're not just robots where it's like, do this, okay, do that. Do this, okay, I'll do that. Do that. Like, no, you're, you're, there's a whole identity built around this. Now, the third one, we're going to get into, into the passage for today, remember. Okay, we're going to get there. The third one is love one another in verse 22. In verse 22. Love one another with a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable seed why should you love one another because a seed has been planted inside of you that seed being the actual spirit of God a God who is love and if God is love then what grows out of the seed that he plants love love for one another you're in a new family you're in the family business okay you're in the family business and the family looks a certain way family acts a certain way Family lives a certain way. That's who you are of imperishable seed from the word. That is, you are unique. Are you seeing how this is, this is making you a stranger in this world? Should be making you a stranger in this world because you're in a family that's not part of any of the families of this world. You're not born into it naturally. You're born into it supernaturally. And that brings us to the last one, which is in, in verse 2 of today's passage, chapter 2, verse 2 where he says, like newborn infants, here we go, same metaphor. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, and your translation might say something other than pure spiritual milk there, and we'll get back to that later. This is a, this is a difficult to translate passage, and that's why different um, translations translate it differently. Um, so we're going to get back to that one. All of this just to say, this, this metaphor of being in a family is hugely crucial if you don't get this as a Christian, then it's going to be really, really hard for you to actually do the things that God calls you to do because you're just thinking, well, God's just got a thing about it, so I guess I got to do it. No, this is, a re- this is revolutionary. This is, this is laying aside your old self-understanding and alignment with this age and having a new one where you're actually saying, I'm not part of this world. I'm not part of this world. That's a lot easier to do, by the way, when the world is already rejecting you. You're like, well, I guess I'm not part of this world because I can't, I can't do anything about that. It's a lot harder when you can walk the walk and talk the talk and blend in, right? It's a lot harder to do it that way. So anyways, that's the, that's the end of the, the first metaphor. You're in a new family. You're born into a new family. The second one is living stones. Now, this one is interesting. We're probably less familiar with this. So... He's talking about living stones built into a habitation for God. He's talking about the temple, being a temple. What does he mean by living stones and all these quotations from Isaiah and the, and the, the Psalms there? Well, the way that a building was built back then was usually out of stone in the, in the Middle East. They don't have a whole lot of wood anyways. But the way that they would build the building is they would have stones quarried and then they would examine these and see, are these fit for the kind of building that we're trying to make? And the most important of those stones was the cornerstone here because it made your walls straight and at the correct angle. And what he's saying is that Jesus 
was like one of those stones that those in the world, probably he's referring to the Jews, received him and said, we can't use this in our building. So they throw him out. The stone is no good. They rejected him because it's not fit for what they are trying to construct. Jesus was rejected and dishonored by his own people. John chapter one, I think it's verse 15. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. By the way, if you are going to follow that Jesus and be in that family and look more like him, what do you think is going to happen to you when it comes to the structures and buildings of this age? Do you think that they're gonna say, oh, this is a great stone fit for what we want to build? Probably not. You're probably gonna be rejected and you're probably gonna feel like an exile, like a sojourner, like what Peter is saying that they are. Now, they are experiencing actual persecution, right? Peter's not trying to develop their identity as an exile because they're, they can't get, out, get away from it. He's trying to comfort them. He's trying to comfort them in the midst of it by saying, hey, you have been dishonored by this world. So is Jesus. But because you are a living stone in Jesus' building, you will receive honor from God. Did you see that? Behold in Zion, I'm laying a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe. If you are going to align yourself with Jesus, you are going to be misaligned with this age. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Whatever you try to align yourself with in this age, if your allegiance is ultimately to Jesus, you will not fit. If you try and fit into one of our various um, political regimes, at some point, they're going to come into contradiction with what Jesus says, and you're gonna to have to choose. You're gonna be a stone that's rejected by that regime. And I'm just talking political regimes, but there's all kinds of other things at the place you work, with your friends, with the culture around us. You're not gonna look like it. You're, the builders are gonna see you and they're gonna say, this stone does not fit. And they'll kick you out. It's always been this way for Christians, by the way. I, I had a slide here, if, uh, whoever the slide person is, can put it up there. Okay, see this slide? Okay, so on, on the left, there's the actual thing and on the right, so this is a piece of graffiti that they found in Rome piece of graffiti somebody scratched into plaster from the, from the second century. And uh, if you look on the right, that's kind of the Indiana Jones like crayon over it thing, so you can, you can see what's actually there. What this is, is it's a man worshiping a crucified man with a donkey's head. And it says, Alexamenos worships his God. This is making fun of Christians. They're saying, you worship a crucified ass, literally. That's what they're saying. Christians have always, always been rejected by the world. If that's you right now, if you're experiencing that, you're in good company, okay? We're, we're strangers and we're exiles and we always have been. You can take that down. I just thought that was something interesting to, to make the point more visual. Alexamenos, whoever he is, was getting lambasted publicly in this graffiti, and so will you. The real question though, the real question is, well, before we get there, that's not what God says. 
God says, you are a stone chosen and precious for my temple that I am building. In fact, you are so precious and so chosen. Remember, like, um, has anybody here been into a cathedral, like uh, one of those older ones, like, say, in, you know, eastern United States or Europe or whatever? You'll find, I, I went, uh, Ian and I and, and two other guys went on a cross-country road trip in my two-door 89 Toyota Tercel a few, few years ago, and that was... Uh, I was thinking about, we should do a podcast where we just reminisce about that because there's so many stories that came out of that trip. But, um, so where we ended up, uh, not the end of the road, but we ended up in New York City and went to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And the interesting thing about that cathedral and many others is that you, as you go along, you'll see every once in a while there's one of those stones that says this stone is dedicated to so-and-so who donated like a billion dollars or whatever to, to make it work. But there's stones with people's names etched in them to honor them for their donation. Do you know that you are a stone in God's building and he etches his name, he honors you. He wants to honor you. And the real question is, do you care about that? Is that the kind of honor you want or do you want the honor that's gonna come in this age? That's a real question. I know I'm, I know I'm being really, really pointed right now. I'm being really pointed about it because it's true. Okay, to, to, to Align yourself with Jesus is to be misaligned with this age, okay? And that means that you will be misaligned by other people as well. Just want to continue to hammer that one home. How much do you care? Do you want honor before God, which will mean dishonor before men? Or honor before men, which will mean dishonor before God? Those seem to be the two things. That's why he calls it a stumbling stone. In Greek, it's where we get the word scandal. This is a scandal. Uh, it scandalizes us to have to choose between these two. So moving on, that's the, that's the temple. Now a chosen people, verses nine and 10. I'll just read them again so that we're all on the same page. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now what's, what's going on here? Uh, Peter is quoting directly from Exodus 19. Uh, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, that's exactly what he says to the Israelites. What has just happened is God delivered them out of Egypt and out of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai. He hasn't even given them the Ten Commandments yet. He delivers them, and then he says, I've chosen you, you're, whole, you're set apart, you're a royal priesthood. priesthood uh, uh, what a priest does is they mediate between God and other human beings. The whole nation is supposed to be a royal priesthood. Now, when we think of these, uh, these words like... Um, chosen nation, a holy, holy people. What does that conjure up in you? Sometimes, you know, oftentimes when we think of holiness, we think of this sort of self-righteousness or something like that. And when you think about a chosen people and a holy nation, that might, for some of us, spark things like, ooh, that sounds like, almost like manifest destiny kind of language. That almost sounds like colonialism kind of language, like where, okay, so we're justified in just kind of taking over the whole world and making it our empire. It's actually not, not at all what Peter has in mind. He actually tells you why you're, you're chosen, but you're chosen for a specific purpose. 
And that specific purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the purpose. The purpose isn't so you can beat people over the head or say, I'm better than you. In fact, the Israelites, what had they done for God when he saved them out of Egypt? What had they done righteously? Nothing. They were just slaves. They hadn't done anything for God. It was purely his grace, his movement towards them, that was, the, that was the reason why he did it, because of him, not because of them. And he moves toward them and chooses them as his people. Why? So that they can then be a beacon of light. Of, they can sh- show the world who he is. And as they failed to do that, they went from being a nation of priests, a priestly nation, to a nation with priests. The nation themselves needed a mediator between them and God. That was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But you can see how if you say like, oh man, I'm, I'm part of a chosen race, you know, a, a royal priesthood or whatever, and you start to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into light, that's gonna create some tension between you and the people around you, isn't it? It's gonna start to create tension because nobody likes hearing that they are in the darkness and they need to be brought into the light. We love to have our egos flattered. We love to have our egos stroked. Oh, you don't really, you know, that's not your fault. You don't really need this. I was, I was at a, a park the other day with my, um, with my kids and my wife, and there was a little girl who had a shirt that said, I don't need a rescuer. And I get that that's like the feminist, like, screw the whole male-female thing that we got going on. I get that. But how sad it is that that's, that's the route we're going, like, towards equality. Instead of saying, we all need a rescuer, it's like, I don't need one. No, we all need a rescuer. And if you don't think that's true, just go ahead and do every single thing that you know to be right this week and come back and tell me how you did. Okay? Do everything you know to be right and don't do anything you know to be wrong. We'll see how well you do. Do you need a rescuer? Absolutely you do. We all do. That's an offensive message, though. We believe in self-empowerment. We believe we should be able to stand on our own two feet and say, I did it. That's what we believe because we're... We're good Americans who are so well discipled by our culture. Do not make a mistake. All of us are better disciples of our culture than we are of Jesus. We all are. And that's why we need each other to call each other out and say, that sounds like discipleship to this age. That's why Peter says, you're exiles and you're strangers. Stop trying to fit in. You won't. It's either that that or else you've got to reject Jesus. Second thing he says is, uh, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is, again, an allusion to the Old Testament. By the way, uh, do you think the New Testament authors believed in Scripture? This, this whole thing, you, you see in your Bible like all the different um, things under quote marks. Those are all quotes of the Old Testament too, right? The only Bible they had. But here there's a whole bunch of allusions to it too. Peter's just saturated in it. He learned from Jesus the meaning of all this. So go ahead and saturate yourself in the scripture too. That's one of the ways to keep from being discipled, to be a better disciple of Jesus than of this world. So this is from Hosea, and if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, what happens is this guy named Hosea has a wife, 
She runs away, she leaves him, and she becomes a prostitute. And then God tells him, go buy your wife out of prostitution. And this whole thing is a metaphor for the people of Israel, for God's people. God had chosen them, delivered them, rescued them, promised himself to them, married them, and they ran away like a prostitute. And he was going to come back and rescue them. And what he says in the midst of, you know, he, he gets back with, Go- his wife's name is Gomer, which is, uh, let's not go too far down that road. But they have two kids. And God says, name the first one, uh, Lo Ruchamah. And the second one, uh, Lo Ami, which means no mercy and not my people. And then later on in chapter two, God's talking about how, how his people have gone into ex- exile because they've rejected him, but he is going to bring them back. He's going to rescue him, and then he will call them Ruchama and Ami. Mercy and my people. That's all of us. That's what Peter is taking that out, and he's applying it to everyone here today, Jew and Gentile. He's saying we all were running away from God, prostituting ourselves to this world, but he said, you, I'm going to have mercy on you and you are going to be my people. Not because of what you've done, you're the one who's going out and prostituting yourself, right? But because of his own grace. It's because of who God is that he does this, right? Now, if this is the nation that you're brought into, this is the family you're brought into, this is the building that you are I can tell you, that makes me want to do the imperatives that he says. A lot more than just like, hey, just do it, okay? Just do it. Just knuckle down, white knuckle it, and do it. And he doesn't say that, by the way. He doesn't say knuckle down and do it. Now, I have been talking an awful lot about, like, just sort of throwing out there flippantly the fact that, you know, we're exiles here, and you're going to get rejected by the world, and that that can be a lot of soft soap, um, for many of us, for easy for me to say. So let's get, let's get practical here, okay? Let's, let's talk brass tacks. I just had, uh, my wife and I, we just had our stroller stolen off of our front porch the other day. We had this, this nice Bob stroller, and if you're familiar with that, I'm sorry. Um, and if you're wondering how we manage our finances, it was a gift and it was old and all that. But somebody stole this stroller, they stole from a baby, from our babies, you know. We got a kid who's two and a kid who's one. We need a double stroller, right? So what do I do with that? What, what should I do with that? Well, to be discipled by this world says, you're a victim, man. You're a victim. You should go out and sue somebody. You should get somebody on this. You don't deserve that. You know, there's nothing more flattering. The reason why, um, okay, tread lightly here, Josh. <laughs> or, should I, or should I just say nothing? So, so you guys understand that there's, there's a, a sort of victimhood culture going around, right? And very often we think of that uh, primarily taking place within minority cultures. But that's not, that's not primarily where that's taking place. It's, it's everywhere. I can't tell you how many straight white males I've heard complaining, acting like they're victims because of what's going on. We all have it. Just like me, like, do I deserve to keep the stroller? See, the, the reason why this is so rampant is because really what's happening is somebody is saying, I see you and you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. You deserve better. You deserve better than this. And there are a few things more flattering to our ego than hearing somebody say, you don't deserve this. You deserve so much better. You know what the gospel says? 
The gospel says, you deserve way worse than this. You deserve way worse than all of this, right? If, if Jesus, if penal substitution is true, if Jesus dying on the cross is what should have happened to each and every one of us before God, then what do we deserve? Exactly that. I don't deserve to have a stroller. I don't deserve to have all the wonderful things I have. I didn't do anything to be born into a country that has exuberant amounts of wealth. I didn't do anything for that. I don't deserve any of that. I deserve damnation and hell, you guys. We all do. Jesus, <laughs> not Jesus, well, Jesus through Peter is talking to people who are persecuted. They are victims, and he doesn't say, oh, poor you, you guys don't deserve this. What he says is, look to your identity in Jesus. You're not part of this world. Of course they're going to reject you. Of course it's not going to be fair. Don't look for it to be fair here. You're not part of this world. We're drawing people out of this world and into God's kingdom. So let's roll it. Let's roll it back around to the beginning of the chapter. I told you I'd get back to that, that part where, the, um, where um, there's a, a translation discrepancy there in the beginning. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, like newborn infants long for the what? Mine says pure spiritual milk. Yours might say the milk of the word, pure milk of the word. What's going on here? Well, that word there that in my translation says spiritual. If you go down to verse um, 5, where it says you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that's not that word. It's not the same word. The word down here for spiritual house and offering spiritual sacrifices, that's nevma or pneuma, depending on how you want to translate it or or transliterate it. Um, Some of your translations say the pure water of the word, right? Go back up to verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. That's the word rima. It's not the word he uses down here in chapter 2, verse 2. Further on, chapter 5. And this word is the good news. That's, that's still not the same word. So what's going on here? There's actually only one other place in the Bible where this word is used, and that's in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, go there. I probably should have put a marker in <laughs> so that I could get, get there faster, but at least this gives you a chance to... Stay with me, okay. Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what worship? Reasonable, spiritual, logical. See, translators are are wrestling with this word in the only other place that it's in the Bible too. It's because this word is the word logikon, which really has to do with logos. And that's where you get that translation word. Word, right? But it doesn't just mean word. Like when you say the pure spiritual milk of the word, what you tend to think of is the Bible, right? But what he really means is, is the logos, the thing underneath every other thing, the, the source, the, the fountain from which everything else comes. The, the concept of the logos is that from which everything else derives what it is. It's a better, a better way of saying it would be ultimate. Like this is ultimate reality. It's the foundation, the thing upon which everything else is based. So long for that pure, ultimate milk that pure source, source of life and reality milk. Long for that. That's Peter's instruction. In light of everything that we have been saying, this is what he's getting at in all of this identity stuff. 
long for that deep source. You know what he, he means? He means long for Jesus. Long for Jesus. You know, here, I don't know if you guys noticed this, probably Nick's the only one who did, but in verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here we have another quotation from Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's the psalm where it says at the beginning, David uh, was pushed out of Israel and he went over to the, um, I think it was the Philistines, and um, he realized these guys, these guys aren't gonna accept me. So he feigns madness and like, acts crazy and is drooling all over himself. And then they, they, they're like, well, I don't need this madman. Get him out of here. And so he's delivered. He's, he's in dire straits and he's delivered. Again, once again, deliverance. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember your deliverance. You guys know. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I remember, <clears throat> I remember from my life how lost I was and how I tasted the goodness of the Lord. You can always, if that has been your experience, you can always go back and remember that and say, I want that. Just like the vegan can say, I want real bacon, not the vegan bacon, right? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You know, we can, uh, to, to flip the metaphor around, you know, some of us who don't, who, who, who eat everything that we possibly can, some of us have forgotten what real food that grows out of the ground tastes like too, right? So we can just flip it around and go that way too. But either way, he's using this child in milk metaphor. You sense, what does a child eat? The pure milk from its mother. It was nurtured in the womb of the mother, and from the mother comes the source after birth in the, in the milk. You don't move on from Jesus. You're always coming back to him. And if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, come and talk to me. I want to pray with you. I want you to know. I want you to taste and see. I want you to actually have this experience, not just in your head, but an experience that gets so deeply into your heart, moves its way out, out of your hands, it gets metabolized into your entire being. Long for this. Gain an appetite for this. Desire this. And by the way, what he's doing right now in, in quoting uh, Psalm 34. What it says there is, taste and see that the kurios, Lord, is Christos, which is a, a pun, it's a wordplay, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is Christ. In Greek, it's, it's one letter away, one letter off. I think he's making a play there. You don't just taste and see that the Lord is good generically, but taste and see that the Lord is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is Lord. That's the foundational statement of the early church. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? So to wrap up and sum up here, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have, these things that Peter says are true of you. What's true of you is that you belong. You belong in a family. 
You've been born into, adopted into a family. You're an inheritor of all the wealth that that family has. And what is all that wealth? If God is the head of that family, literally everything. All goodness comes from God, all of it. Anything you see good anywhere is sourced in God. It doesn't come from anywhere other than him. You're an inheritor of the wealth of that father. You belong. You belong in this temple, in this house. You, are, you were cut and chosen and you're precious to be placed in here. And God has his name on you and says, I want you here. You belong in this nation so that you can just proclaim just how awesome God is, how he's taken you from darkness to light. You belong. And not only do you belong, but you have a purpose. So many people I know, so many of the problems in our world are due, well, to people not knowing Jesus, but also people who do know Jesus not knowing what their purpose and what their point in life is. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you have a purpose. You're in this family. You are to resemble the head of this family, to be holy as he is holy, to represent him as part of that royal priesthood, that holy nation proclaiming all the good things to, as a living stone to support those other stones around you. Remember, too, all these metaphors, they all have to do, that. none of them are individual. They're all collective in nature. As one stone, you support the other stones that are rested upon you and beside you, and they support you. Same thing with the family and the nation. They're all collective. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Before I got up here, <clears throat> I took a walk to pray. And um, one of the things I hear the Lord say to me when I am nervous <clears throat> is, you are my son and I will always love you. Somebody here needs to hear that. You're God's chosen child and he loves you. You need to know that. Life is gonna get hard for all of us, you guys. It's already hard for a lot of us. But no matter who you are, no matter how much wealth you have, no matter what family you were born into, no matter how good of a job you have, how much you enjoy your life right now, it's gonna get hard. It's gonna break down. Your friendships are gonna break down. Your, your marriages are gonna suffer. Your children are gonna suffer. You're gonna get old. You're gonna be useless to people. It's going to get hard. What do you have to hang on to? What's going to carry you through all that? You can keep coming back to this source and taste and see, taste and see and grow up into Jesus. And then you can weather everything. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. All the hard things are going to come your way. No matter what philosophy you take on, no matter what you identify yourself with, it's going to happen to you. This is the only thing that's going to continue to nurture and nourish you and keep you going all the way through. Come to Jesus. Worship team, you can come up. Um, we're going to be done here, but we're not entirely done. I'm, I'm going to be done talking so that you guys can really talk to Jesus, come to him right now. So we're moving into a time where we're going to sing. 
We're gonna sing praises. Like, if you know Jesus, if you've tasted, and what, I, what I've been saying has been stirring in your heart, you have an opportunity to just close your eyes, and if you're not too self-conscious, raise your hands or something like that, stand up, and just think about how awesome how awesome Jesus is, how good he is since you've tasted and seen. And if you're going, I have tasted, but I haven't tasted in a long time. It's been a really long time. I've been kind of falling off the wagon. You can taste and see again today. It's not too late. It's not over. His mercy is new every day, so come to him today. Don't just talk to somebody who's, who's come with you. You can do that. You can do that. But I think there's also people here to pray with you. People here to pray with you. Come talk to me. There's a baptism this afternoon. Come to that. Be baptized today. If what I'm saying is, is creating this knot in your gut or in your throat or something like that, because you don't really know Jesus, but you know what I'm saying is true. You suspect what I'm saying is true, that life is going to get harder for all of us, and you don't know what's going to hold you through. Or maybe you're experiencing some kind of trauma, something really, really hard in your life, and you don't know if you're going to make it through it. Come to Jesus right now and come get baptized today as we're moving into the time of worship, there's the bread and the cup here. This is a special meal that Jesus gave to his followers. If you know Jesus, if you belong to him, this is available to you. If you don't know Jesus, we'll respect your honesty in refraining from taking this meal because he said that this is special for those who have made a covenant with him. But as you, as you take this, think of how real you can taste and see the bread and the juice, right? Say, Lord, Make your love for me, who you are to me, make it as real as this thing that I'm tasting and seeing with my own eyes. Come to Jesus right now, amen? Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.